This is Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Danielle and Denise talk to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how a game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Denise, and Danielle for Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 21, Abomination Vaults. Today, we're joined by Vanessa Hoskins, a designer that has uh, worked on dozens of RPG and has dozens of RPG writing credits, many of which are highly regarded published adventures. She also features on half a dozen gaming podcasts, so we are feeling super special you're here. Thank you for joining us, Vanessa. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I am... I am pumped. I am so excited to be here. I want to share the awesome world that is tabletop role-playing games with you and your illustrious audience. Wonderful. Well, could you start with telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the game design community? Sure. Um, so uh, I am a boring white person uh, of of adult years of age, uh, far too many, unfortunately. Um, and I got into role-playing games oh, when I was a kid. I remember um, my uncle wanting to have me play D&D, but I wasn't allowed because that was, that was scary in the 80s. Uh, yes. But I could play... Yeah, no, people, you don't know about the scare? Oh, my goodness. No. Oh, yes. The, like, Satanism fear and oh, yes. interesting, like, panic. Harry Potter, how some schools got rid of it. <laughs> yeah, but it was really extreme, and there's a big reason for it. But essentially, I won't bore you with that history, but it, it comes down to um, Dungeons & Dragons became this scapegoat and this thing that sort of the religious right could point at and say, that's a bad thing that we're crusading against. And my mom unfortunately heard about this and she's like well you're not allowed to play Dungeons and Dragons I'm like that's fine it's not it's a game called Rollmaster it's a totally different game they were basically the same type of game which is a, a tabletop role playing game um, kind of similar to a board game I know that a lot of your your fans out there your listeners are, are board gaming fanatics and that's awesome um, and this is sort of an evolution of that uh, the original Dungeons and Dragons game in fact came from a tabletop a war game called Chainmail, and they said, "Well, instead of controlling giant u- units of troops, like a whole, you know, battalion, what if you just controlled one troop, uh, and everyone at the table controlled one troop, and then you went through uh, creepy dungeons full of weird stuff, and there was story and." A lot of the early games was like, okay, you come across a strange fountain that glows with a an eerie blue light." And then what do you do? And you have to be like, well, I don't know. I want to, can I taste the water? Well, if you want to, and then, you know, figure out what <laughs> like you want to do. that's your go-to. Let's drink the creepy water. I mean, you know, or like we're going to splash in it or I'm going to throw a coin in it or whatever. And so, um, you know, and then sometimes you'd go into a room and it's like, there's a bunch of enemies here to fight, a bunch of skeletons. Oh, beat up the skeletons. And that's that was the original sort of what tabletop RPGs were uh, back in the back in the days, back in the seventies, and they've evolved quite a bit since then. There is now a plethora of varieties uh, of games, including uh, Pathfinder, which is the one I write the most for, Starfinder, which is its science fiction cousin, uh, and also more niche games like Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Uh, so <laughs> there's all sorts of stuff out there. 
That is amazing that they have such a diverse uh, RPG catalog out there. Because I actually did see that, uh, what was it, like Thirsty Sword Lesbian or whatever. I saw that when I went to my local friendly like game store. And I was like, what is this? I kind of want to try it. Yeah, it's uh, it's just it's another tabletop RPG that that takes this experience of uh, like I'd say two thirds tabletop board game and one third improv and smushes it together, and you end up telling a, a communal story with the other folks at the table, whether that's the other players that are each playing their own sort of main character in this story, uh, or that's the game master who is running the game, sometimes called the dungeon master or the referee. And the game master's job is to basically play all of the NPCs, the non-player characters, if you will, uh, and describe everything else about the game. They're like, they're sort of like the, the narrator and the director all in one. So if you're a board gamer and you're curious or interested in trying tabletop role-playing games, um, certainly check it out. Uh, a lot of them, especially like Pathfinder, which is the one I'm, I'm going to talk about the most uh, today, uh, Pathfinder is, is very much like uh, a fun, crunchy board game with lots of interesting rules and mechanics, uh, but then also with a really interesting narrative story kind of plopped on the top of it. Uh, and Pathfinder itself releases these adventures that can go from uh, pirate adventures to uh, going to strange worlds and traveling to the moon or something, uh, or something as simple as a dungeon crawl, uh, which is what my, my latest adventure released is as part of the Abomination Vaults, is this this dungeon crawl where you're going back to sort of the old school 70s style of there's a big weird dungeon under the ground. Who knew? And there's a bunch of weird stuff in there and you get to go explore it and see what it's all about. That's so awesome. And I know you are known for creating like RPG mechanics as well as the adventures. Would you mind explaining to the audience what that looks like for an RPG versus a tabletop game? Oh, absolutely. So when they first released Pathfinder, you got your core rules, right? It's this big book and it explains like how to play different types of characters and make them and play the game. Cool. But then just like board games have expansions, where it's going to add some new rules or a new character you can play or like a new mechanic on top of the rest of the game, uh, tabletop RPGs have the same sort of thing where they'll release, uh, you know, a, a, a book just about magic, um, a book just about early firearms and technology, uh, a, a book just about a certain region of this world they've created and all the cool stuff that's in that region. Um, these books add on to the core rule book, uh, not only in the stories that you can tell and the things that are there and, and interesting story ideas for a game master if they're writing their own to say, ooh, I could do an adventure set here. I could tell a story that takes place in this location. But some of them are, are like you said, more crunchy rule stuff. And so um, what they'll do is they'll introduce, let's say, new kinds of magic uh, that, you know, you can you can explore so, for example, I recently got to contribute to a book called Secrets of Magic, and I was one of, oh, probably a dozen or two authors that are contributing to this book. But it says if you want to play a spellcaster, like a wizard or a druid or a sorcerer or something, this book has a bunch of additional rules that you can use to do different things. A um, couple of the, the sections I wrote, for example, one of them I did is cathartic magic, which is all about sort of the power of your emotions taking over and really just 
juicing your magic up to 11, but for a short period of time, and then you get exhausted. And so it, it helps tell those, those story moments in you know, your favorite movie or something that you've seen like that, where uh, someone who has a cool power gets like really upset or uh, maybe is just very, um, like very determined or in pain or whatever happens that like unleashes a bunch of magic. And so I got to write this, the rules, the, the mechanics that we use at the table, just like an expansion for a board game for cathartic magic. So if you're like, I really want to play with that, that sounds cool. Well, now you can. Now you've got something that you can that you can point to and say, aha, not only can I just do these story moments on my own, but I can have a mechanical advantage in the game from using these rules. And just, you said that you worked with, what, 12 people on that? How do you collaborate with so many different, are you classified as authors when you're talking about like RPG writing? Like how do you collaborate and figure out how to meld it together so it feels like one voice? So what they do is they have uh, folks called developers that are in charge of a specific book or a specific line of books. And those work for Paizo, the company that publishes Pathfinder. And they're, they're like the director of the book, right? They're the, the head honcho on the project. And then so what they'll do is they'll give freelance authors like myself uh, specific assignments. So when this was originally doled out, they said, okay, uh, here's all these different sections. You're going to write cathartic magic and this other section on sin magic, uh, which has to do with like the magic of lustfulness or the magic of greed or the magic of, you know, of laziness, yeah. of entropy. Um, so so interesting and then they just meld it all together yeah exactly so so they'll do a lot all these different pieces and you can think of it like a project manager in a way where they're you know everyone's working on their own little bit and they'll take it and tie it all together and make sure that the entire book this entire secrets of magic book is one cohesive whole and then in the credits, does it say like your name and what sections you wrote? Or is it just like a massive list alphabetized of all the people that worked on a project? Currently, it is the second one. It is a massive list. Oh, that's so, kind of a bummer. <laughs> well, so here's what's interesting. So looking at like Secrets of Magic, there's like maybe a couple dozen people in the additional writing section. But for something like an adventure path, like Abomination Vaults, I specifically wrote book two of three. Uh, so that one had three main authors on it. James Jacobs, who's their creative director over at Paizo. So he got to write the first book of Abomination Vaults called Ruins of Gauntlet. Uh, and that's the first part of the adventure you would play. And then when you get deep enough into the dungeon and things start to get really scary, you play my section, which is called Hands of the Devil. And I wrote 95% of what's in that book. Uh, and then the last bit was written by Stephen Randy McFarland, who uh, used to be one of the designers over at Paizo and has, has moved on to bigger and better things and other, other companies. Um, but he wrote the third part. And so you've got this, this big, cool dungeon crawly type adventure in three parts, uh, written by three authors instead of, you know, 24. Uh, and uh, it really allows us to take the section that was assigned to us and say, okay, this is it, and really make it our own. So that's, I'm really curious then, where do you start? So you've been given this section, I'm assuming, do you have sort of a rough sketch of what the other two books are accomplishing and the notes that they need to hit? But how do you start sort of designing at that point with, with the information that's given to you? 
Oh, that's a great question. Um, so sometimes the adventures are a little more strict, right? We have to get the plot to move from here, you know, from point A to point B to C to make sure that we hit certain notes. Uh, and sometimes it's a little loose. And that's what I got on this Hands of the Devil on the second book of Abomination Vaults is a very, what we call sandboxy type adventure, where the players can pretty much do what they want, go at their own pace and and go where they want to go. And my job as the designer is just to fill it with content, which can sometimes be daunting because you don't know are they going to go left or right? Are they going to go down the, this corridor or that one? Where are they going to get the key to this door? What are they going to do when they get to a locked door? Are they going to turn around and go somewhere else? Are they going to pick the lock? Like, how are they going to get through? And some of that, um, some of that is a little daunting, but some of it actually is kind of nice. It, it's that blank canvas uh, uh, on a painting where you haven't put any paint down or, or maybe you just had a sketch and it can still be almost anything. It can still really just sort of inspire you to do whatever it is that you want to do. And that was one of the most fun parts of writing this adventure. Uh, one of the things that we did get in terms of the, the template uh, is, and this is sort of awkward, but it was kind of cool is we got the maps ahead of time. Usually when doing an adventure, I know that they have to go to, I don't know, a brewery or something. I'm going to need a brewery map. But for this one, uh, instead of ha me having to draw my own maps, they said, here's a pre-drawn map. Here's a description of what was in these areas, generally speaking, um, hundreds of years ago. Hundreds of years ago, this was a coliseum. Hundreds of years ago, this was an infirmary. Hundreds of years ago, this was a jail. I'm, as a designer, get to decide how that area has evolved over the last several hundred years. Who's there now? What are they doing with the infrastructure that might have been left behind? So in Hands of the Devil, uh, there are some pretty creepy people uh, that have made it into those levels and are doing some strange experiments and some other things. And so it was just a, a lot of fun to go around and say, well, if I have a room that is shaped like this and this area was used for this sort of thing, what might be in there? And then I have to come up with not only what exactly was going on there hundreds of years ago, but what's happening now. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that must have helped a lot in comparison to just like putting together your own map. Yeah, it, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting take on it, because then you have something to sort of go from. Whereas when you're making your own map, you have to figure out how all the interconnective tissue works, right? How all the corridors are, where the doors are, how you get from one place to another. Because in uh, in tabletop RPGs, when you're dealing with a very map-heavy adventure like these dungeon crawls are, uh, th that's your gaming board, right? That's that's your template for where you can go, and you're going to start at the start location. But which rooms you go into becomes kind of a flowchart of the adventure, because I can go left, and now there's things down the left corridor that the players are likely to encounter in sequence, but they might skip a room and say, hey, we want to go to those big double doors at the end of the hall. These little tiny doors north and south, we're not interested in those. We want to go all the way down to the end. And, you know, you need, you need something there. Um, what's kind of fun for me is to is to think about that flow, think about that sort of flow chart design of, of corridors and doors and locked doors, right? So I can put a locked door somewhere where maybe there's something really strong on the other side of it. And the idea is 
the players need to adventure around and explore enough rooms uh, to get powerful enough, right? Because they'll level up. They'll get more strength as they continue fighting encounters, better loot, more weapons. And I want them to explore more before going beyond this locked door. So I might put the key on the other end of the dungeon or somewhere else and just let that door be locked. But if they've got someone who's really good at the lockpick and they're determined to get through it, well, okay. I guess you're going to see what's on the other side of that door then. (laughs) I'm curious, Vanessa, what draws you to dungeon crawls in particular as an adventure style? I really like them, actually. In modern RPGs, sometimes people are like, no, they're too restrictive. It's so weird to have this like series of rooms underground. But I don't know. I think they're kind of cool. I like the idea that there are creepy crawly things under the ground that you were just blissfully unaware of i like the i like the sort of set structure of we know we're here and there are rooms to explore and we're going to explore them especially like when i play games i'm a completionist i like to go in every room i like to make sure i've looted all the stuff i've defeated all the enemies like i want to make sure i get 100 percent when i'm done with that game and you so, are like my friend and every time we play any of those like super mario brother games he needs yes. to get every freaking coin and i was like oh gotcha. you're driving me crazy yeah i need to beat all the levels i need to get all the special stars right and that's how i am when it comes to these and i, I think dungeon crawls are cool because you know where the borders are right you can color inside the lines but you know where those lines are And so, yeah, you could leave the dungeon and go do something else. Okay, but then you're not playing this adventure. This adventure happens in this dungeon. And and you can know that you've seen everything because you've explored all the rooms. And how are you selected to do the second book of three books for this project? Um, I don't know. I think I think my developer Ron likes me. Um, nice. most, <laughs> I had written a lot of adventures uh, prior to that, mostly in what uh, in the Pathfinder world we call Pathfinder Society. Uh, it's their organized play system. Um, these are a lot of new terms. Uh, so an organized play system is like usually so traditionally back in the seventies and and today, if I want to play one of these games, I'm likely to sit around a table with four of my friends, you know, four to seven of my friends or something, and we're all going to sit around and play this game together. But there are times when I can't make it all the time because these games take, you know, many, many hours. We're not talking Arkham Horror an entire Saturday. We're talking like multiple Saturdays over several months to get through from the beginning to the end of the game. Um, And so you sort of save where you're at and clean up your stuff and come back next week and play. Well, sometimes folks can't play every week. They're like, I, that's that's too big of a commitment. <laughs> I, I don't know that I want to do that. Well, Organized Play lets you play these smaller episodic adventures where you can show up with your character, you can sit down and play, get a nice story, beginning, middle, end, get some cool loot and power up your character a bit, and then go home. And then if you don't get a chance to play for three or four weeks, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Next time you get a chance to play, come back with that character and play another adventure. And I had written uh, ooh, half a dozen, a dozen of those sorts of short form adventures for Paizo and for the Pathfinder and Starfinder systems and gotten, you know, my teeth cut, I guess, enough to the point where I, I, I approached them and I said, all right, I want one of the big adventures. <laughs> Give me one of the big adventure paths. I like that because honestly, 
one of the reasons I don't play a lot of RPGs is that time commitment of coming back every Saturday. And it's nice to know that there are those kinds of options, especially for like the people who are obsessed with board games, but maybe they're not quite ready to make that commitment for the RPG. Right. So yeah, exactly. So if, if you're like, I just want to try this out, but I don't want to have to spend time like figuring out for other people to play it with me. I'm like, where do I start? How do I meet other people interested in this? Um, that organized play, the Pathfinder Society, is a great place to do it because then you can just go play for about four hours. That's about the time it takes four to five hours to play one adventure. And then, you know, pack up and go home. And the other cool part about it is I know people that shy away from tabletop because let's say they travel for business and they're like, I don't know if I'm going to be in town or out of town or in Europe. Like, I have no idea where I'm going to be. Well, in this case, the organized play system is really great because then you can just say, well, I can actually take my character with me. And if I'm in Cincinnati this week, maybe I can find a game in Cincinnati and meet some new people and play with some folks from there. And then if I'm in Texas the week after that, well, I can try to find a game in Texas. It's so important to have accessibility like that with a game that takes time uh, and ends up can often be about Story t- is about storytelling and relationships. So to be able to pick up and, and get involved and get going is it's pretty yeah. cool. What does playtesting look like during the development process? So given what we've just talked about, like it takes time to go through these, um, even as a player, what is the process for sharpening, for testing it out as you develop it? Every time I'm ready to take a risk, every time I want to try something new, I want to play test it. If it's just another like, and there are three guards and they have bows, like, okay, whatever. I know how that fight's going to go, you know, but I'm going to spoil one of my adventures, for example. I had an adventure where I said, what I want to do is I want to have this door to this really creepy place. You know, you're going someplace bad. And as you approach this horrible, evil temple, there's this door that has all these glyphs and dials on it and it's obviously some sort of puzzle and you know let's give the players a printout so that they know like here's your handout here's what the puzzle looks like try to figure it out and they look and they say like oh which dial how do we turn the dials maybe like this is this the combination meanwhile the entire time the door is just a creature that is pretending to be a puzzle door trying to get someone to walk up to it and touch it so it can devour them (laughs) and that it, it's great. Uh, some folks have called it the best puzzle in Pathfinder. Um, and I wasn't sure what the reception was going to be, though, because, I mean, you give someone a puzzle and then you go, just kidding, it's going to eat you now because you bought into the, you know, what you were supposed to do of like, I'm trying to solve this puzzle and you punish me for trying to solve the puzzle by attacking me with a killer door. And it's like, yeah, OK. So I wanted to play test that and see, did the players enjoy the gotcha moment of like oh you got me i didn't realize that that's what that was or did it not go over well and they felt betrayed and so things like that you always want to play test just to be like "Mm." um sometimes you can combine certain uh, mechanics i'm trying to think of other things i've play tested because i usually play test specific encounters where i say okay yeah where i say well if i combine these two enemies with these two special abilities that work probably too well together is that too much? Is that just going to kill all the players and no one has any fun? Because you don't want that. Um, 
as a designer, you want to challenge the players. You want to get them to have to use smart moves and good strategy to survive, to get through it. But you don't want to just like wipe them out. That's no fun. So what changes were made for Abomination Vaults and Chapter 2 specifically? What Were there any changes throughout the playtesting process? Oh, yes. Uh, it always goes through development. So the developer comes up with this outline, uh, sends it to the freelancers, gets all the writing back, and then usually polishes it up. And I will say, yes, my writing changes from when I turned it in to when it's published, uh, but always for the better. In designing these things, it is a collaboration. And we talked about Secrets of Magic being a very like crunchy rules book, being a collaboration of, oh, everyone's like writing different types of magic, and then the developer makes sure that they're all coherent. Um, in the case of an adventure, it's sort of similar. It's another set of eyes from someone with a lot of industry experience, a lot of experience writing these things and working on them that can find your foibles and your flaws. Sometimes it's as dumb as, I said this door was locked, and I forgot to say where the key was. Oh, that's so funny. Or or I only put the key in one place and that key is in a hard to reach place or a place that the characters might not see. And it's like, we need to put the key, like maybe another copy of it somewhere else just to make sure that the players are going to like trip over it and find it so that they can continue the adventure. Because if, if the rest of the adventure is behind a locked door and they can't get past the locked door, that's no fun. So there are things like that that have changed. Uh, there are specifics of encounters that have changed. Uh, there are sometimes things that I want to have happen that maybe I didn't express in a way um, that comes across really well to someone that's not living inside my own head. Uh, and the developer can look at that and say, ah, I see what she's trying to do. Uh, let me just rearrange some of the pieces and reword some stuff so that all of a sudden it'll come out and the, the game master who's running the game and the players who are playing it all go, ah, I know what this scene's about. I understand what I'm supposed to do. It's so cool. And with these ones, since it was three separate books, did you do much like collaborating with the people who wrote the first and the third? Um, a little bit. Mostly it was about sort of finding seeds that we could plant and then pick up later. Um, some of that was in the outline. It sort of just depends. There's um, There are other adventure paths where I've collaborated more than I have on this particular project. Uh, it really sort of just depends on the needs of that project. One of the things they had done with Abomination Vaults is they do sort of, they have like three distinct sections to separate out those books. And it's written in such a way that even in game and story-wise, you can't really move on to the next section without finishing what you need to do in your current section. I don't want to give anything away, um, but it's that locked door principle, right? There, instead of saying there's a locked door and you can pick it, imagine saying there's a locked door, but you can't. You need to finish this book, finish this story. And once you finish the story, the door will be unlocked and then you can move on. And so because of the narrative structure of these ones, there wasn't as much of a need to collaborate versus some other adventure paths that I've written uh, with some folks that do have much more collaboration in terms of like, oh, you're going to use this reoccurring villain that I'm going to have later. How did you write their dialogue so I can write dialogue that's similar? Things like that. That's so awesome. And then what did you find special about this RPG compared to some of the other books you've worked on? One of the things that this afforded me is it let me play in a area called the Darklands. So in the Pathfinder mythos, the Darklands is this 
subterranean existence. It's it's like if you could go deep beneath the Earth's, Earth's crust and into the mantle, and if there were giant caves in the mantle of the world uh, where people lived and had societies and dramas all their own, that's the Dark Lands. Places where folks had never even heard of the sun. What are you talking about? Like a really powerful torch somewhere up in the ceiling? I don't understand. And because of the nature of this particular dungeon crawl, you're going deeper and deeper and deeper. It let me play with some of these Darklands creatures that I may not have gotten a chance to play with before. And I'm going to, I'm going to spoil one little bit. So if you don't want to be spoiled, skip ahead about a minute because I'm sure we'll be talking about it, but it let me play with these creatures and what I did. And this is so dumb. So I told you I had a map to start off with. I looked at the map on one of the floors and I said, that looks like a tavern and that looks like a stage. And if you've got a tavern in the middle of a dungeon crawl and you have a stage, you better bet I'm going to put performers on that stage. So what I did is I took these Darklands creatures and I created like a heavy metal band, but using Renaissance instruments that all perform on this stage. And it's ludicrous. It's so silly. You're going from room to room with terrible horrors that you just unspeakable things that you can't believe someone has art for and now you've seen that that's burning your brain forever and you're fighting your way through and you go around the next corner and you hear music and as you travel to the end of the corridor the music gets louder and louder and it's it's very aggressive very loud music and you open the door and there's a tavern and there's a band playing (laughs) And it's so ridiculous to have this in the middle of a dungeon, but at the same time, because of the sort of the society that is created in this dungeon of, of people that are just living their lives here, terrible, horrible people, yes, but people nonetheless, it makes sense. You might have a place to go hang out. So here's this tavern and here's a band that's playing. They're on tour uh, and you can interact with them. Like you don't have to beat them up and take their stuff. Uh, you can, you can have a battle of the bands with this band. That's just like playing on stage. And it's one of the most ridiculous encounters. And I remember writing it and just giggling with glee at the, like at the, you know, the master ludist who's also a mosher. He has an ability called mosh where he just jumps at you and knocks you down. <laughs> so rude. <laughs> His weapon is the battle loot. If you actually want to fight the band, they're formidable. And he uses the powers of Mosh and a battle loot. Uh, the lead singer is their healer and just sings at her companions who then get their strength back. Like, it's a ridiculous encounter. And I just remember being so happy writing it. Uh, but it's one of those things that like you just get this inspiration and you just do and things like that are just so much fun because you can write the most ridiculous stuff and put it in there and heck as long as it makes sense in the world of the you know in the world that you've created and the adventure you've created great i'm curious i hear this i just hear such joy in you talking about these <laughs> moments which is really really fun and i am now sort of itching to to get involved in uh this particular adventure uh oh i've never gosh. done pathfinder before and this feels like a really uh, good entry point for my own tastes and sensibilities mm-hmm. and I, but i want to ask how did you discover writing for RPGs as a passion? How do you make the switch from being a player to a writer and to a creator? What helped you sort of access and realize, I love this and, and, 
and get into it. Because I, I, my gut is that we may have a lot of listeners who are probably like me, love playing, but the move mm. into creating and fashioning that world is just like another step. How did you do that? What let you know, like, hey, this may be my jam? Oh, my goodness. So I can definitely say uh, breaking into tabletop RPG writing is both something you can absolutely definitely do, but something that also takes time and persistence. Uh, and and in some ways, right place at the right time, sort of magic happening. But like we know, you make your own magic. So I had been designing and writing adventures not professionally, but just on my own, uh, ever since I think college, where we played Dungeons and Dragons third edition, and we would, we didn't have pre-published adventures. In fact, I didn't even know they were a thing that existed until, oh, I don't know, a decade ago. Um, we would just make our own adventures. We, we had um, like a monster book, and we had the core rules, and we would just make it up as we went. And that was how we played. And that was old hat for me. And then one day I went to a convention and found out that there are these people playing these pre-published adventures. I'm like, wait, people, people get paid to write these things. So I played for a couple of years and I kind of wanted to write it, but I don't know. They, they have their writers and I'm not going to worry about it. And then I saw that Paizo had an open call for new authors. And I'm like, well, I could write this stuff, certainly. So I sent them uh, like a little, what they call a quest, like a little tiny mini adventure that takes maybe an hour to play. I wrote that all up and I had it all formatted nice and I sent it in. I didn't hear back for two years. Oh no! It turns out that the open call wasn't in fact open anymore and they forgot to take down the page that said that it was open, but the mailbox was still functioning. So I send this thing in and it gets received and then I didn't hear back. So I thought, wow, I must be terrible. Uh, no one said anything. Um, and like two years went by. And in that time, I found other ways to write. Um, I talked to what we call third-party publishers. So Paizo makes Pathfinder, but all sorts of other companies have like licensed products that they'll write. And so I was writing for some other people, usually just rules and things. And then all of a sudden, uh, John Compton, one of the developers over there, uh, he emails me back and he says, hey, I really liked your, your quest you submitted for the open call, but um, it's, it's kind of like two years old. It's like, he didn't realize at the time it was two years old. He was just thinking this involves the plots and things that were happening in our shared collective game. Cause the society has these big meta plots. He's like, this is like a two year old meta plot. Like this is, this is from seasons ago. What, what, what are you doing? So he said, can you write me something like, can you update it for the modern season? Can you write something else? Or, or just update it. And I said, sure. So he gave me some notes. I updated it. I sent it back. He said, this is great. And a few months later, he said, okay, we're ready for you. Uh, let's, let's give you an adventure. And that was the first Pathfinder Society scenario I got to write. Uh, but there are, there are more paths to get to the same place. So for folks out there that are like, yes, I play Dungeons and Dragons all the time. I play Pathfinder all the time. I want to write. Um, the best thing I can say to you uh, for, for Pathfinder anyhow is there's a very healthy third-party publishing community out there. I would find someone out in that part of the community whose products you like and get started there. That's a good avenue. 
Another one that's done pretty well is literally just start a blog, advertise it on Twitter, advertise it on Reddit, start talking about it and start writing stuff. Maybe you're doing a monster every week. Maybe you're doing a magic item every week. Maybe you're doing like once a month, a little tiny, like I was saying, like a one hour sort of little tiny mini, mini dungeon or mini adventure and just publishing that you know, for free just to, just to put the stuff out there. Uh, and that will get you noticed. That'll get you some attention and that'll get you some work. Uh, the third avenue that I can give to folks that works pretty well. There is a fanzine, a fan magazine called Wayfinder. Uh, fanzines suck. This one doesn't. <laughs> uh, Wayfinder magazine is brilliant and they release a, an issue once a year, just once a year at uh, PaizoCon, which is Paizo's own big convention in Seattle. Uh, and the thing is, it has such a reputation for finding really good talent and uh, growing that talent and, and making sure it works. Like I've written for Wayfinder back before I had almost anything published. And those Wayfinder magazines get into the hands of people at Paizo who publish Pathfinder who can look at it and say, ah, there's some really ta good talent in this. So awesome. Thank you so much for like all those tips and just how to get into it. Because I know... All game designers, like I didn't know when I first started that that was even a job. I thought you had to like work at Hasbro. And oh then gosh. I realized it's just like an author, like anyone can do it. It's just like the persistence and, you know, yeah. finding and connecting with the right people. Oh my goodness. I remember oh, so much regret. I remember being in high school um, and telling my guidance counselor what I wanted to do when I grew up was to make games. And they said, that's not a real job. Boo. Pick something else. And I believed them. I couldn't believe it. And that is one of the things I wish I had just been like, no, you're wrong. You're old. You don't play games. You don't know. And then gone and just played games and made games and just did it. Because uh, it took me years to go from like, I'm going to go into some. No, no, no. I, I want to make games. I want to write. And well, good for you. I'm glad you found it. <laughs> yes. I'm so happy. <laughs> Oh, man. And then going back to our spotlight uh, game, the Abomination Vaults. Sure. I did want to know, how long did it take to go from that like inspiration or being hired on to do that storyline to it coming out? Oh, like the whole process of, of this book specific? This specific uh, book, yes. It's uh, adventures like this. The big adventure path ones are usually about a year. So I think I wrote it. Yeah, I think it was about a year. Um, so I think I wrote it in... I want to say early 2020 and then it came out just like in February or March of this year. So yeah, it takes oh, a while. Wow. Yeah. How many, how many of these projects do you normally work on at the same time? Do you just go like one-to-one -one, or do you have multiple stacked on top of each other? One-to-one -one sounds great. If I, if I wasn't a fool, that would be the answer. Um, but I am a fool. Uh, all too often, I say yes to far too many things because they all sound like so much fun. So I need to very carefully plan out my writing time to make sure I can get it all done. Uh, I am at any given time working on sometimes zero, but usually between like one and three different projects are sort of in the queue ready to go. Wow. Do you get yeah. mixed up sometimes and start writing something that should be in a different book? Kind of. I, I think what happens is sometimes you get ideas for one thing while you're writing something else. Um, I, I can't go into specifics about what I'm writing right now because non-disclosure agreements are in place. But what happens is I'll be working on an encounter, let's say, and I have 
oh, I'm going to throw out stuff that didn't never existed. Um, I have a rogue who's super roguey and is great at throwing knives. And I'm like, yeah. And one of the fun things in Pathfinder is we get to give even NPCs like custom abilities, like no one else in the world has this ability except this one person. So I'm like, okay, what if we give him an ability where if you throw a knife at him or any thrown thing at all, he can catch it out of the air and immediately throw it right back at you because he is so cool. And then later, or, you know, maybe at the same time, you're like, you know what? That's really cool. But I also need more cool rogue feats for this other book. Maybe I'll just take that ability and put it in this other place and instead give this cool NPC a different power because that is cool enough that I could imagine a player saying, I want that power. And so I'll put it in the book that has cool player options and not just as something this one NPC that you fight one time does. I love that. And there's so many ideas that can come through that kind of custom customization that right. really are special and create really cool moments uh, that are like one of a kind and really memorable for players. That's, that's really fun. As you look back on this particular book um, within the abomination vaults, what was your most favorite moment in writing hands of the devil? And what was probably like the biggest challenge? Oh my goodness. So I, I told you, about the band and that was definitely my favorite moment oh no i spoiled it for people that skipped that other spot anyway there's a band yeah, you're fine <laughs> I, I feel like it's not too much of a spoiler no, no other pieces about it <laughs> i'm gonna spoil one yeah. encounter that i just found so delightful and i was like i cannot wait for people to play this so there is a room that was like a banquet hall, like a, like a fancy VIP room uh, that if you were to go to a sporting event, you would go and there was, you know, a buffet with fancy dishes and silver platters and things. And hundreds of years ago, something terrible happened. Okay, so I said, well, what if uh, people were trying to run away and leave the room and get out because bad things were happening? And what if like these two brothers got trampled and just died? Jeez. But... Uh, well, yeah, people are people are on the move. Uh, but what if their spirits lingered and they became poltergeists and the poltergeists were then mad at each other and they were blaming each other for getting stuck? I had to wait for you to do this. And now we don't know how to get out of here. No, I had to wait for you. It's your fault. You, you had to go get your fancy jacket. And they were just like bickering and fighting about whose fault it is that they got trampled and stuck in this room. And they're ghosts at this point. They're poltergeists. They they can't. They can't leave the room. They're stuck in this moment in time of being mad at each other for getting each other killed. And this anger turns into a fight and they start hurling objects around the room. So that beautiful silver platter just dented, just thrown across the room. Bang. Okay. What if they do this for hundreds of years? And then all of a sudden your players come across them and you hear shouting and fighting and stuff coming from the next room and two voices yelling at each other and you're like what is going on in here and you open the door and there's just you don't see anybody you just see objects in the room getting thrown across a table leg uh, an old spoon like it doesn't matter it's just getting hurled across the room back and forth and then of course they notice you and they're like who are these people it's probably their fault and they start throwing things at you and you have to deal with these two poltergeists now here's the fun part their poltergeists are a type of ghost they don't die so even if you're 
intrepid heroes defeat the poltergeist and slay them. They're going to be back in a few days and they will continue arguing and throwing stuff back at each other. And you have to figure out how to get them to stop. I mean, you don't have to. You could just leave them there for eternity, I suppose. Uh, But like in their instance, they just want to get out. They just want to leave because everyone's evacuating. Literally, you just show them the way out. You're like, hey, yeah, like, hey, hey, there's a way out. It's right over here. Like, we, we found this way out. It's over here. Just follow us and we'll lead you out. And like, they're like, okay. And you lead them out of the dungeon. And they're so happy to see the sky. And then they move on to the afterlife and they're done. That's so funny. And they have like nothing else to throw at each other. <laughs> and it's just fun encounters like that that I just, I just get so tickled at. No, I mean, writing it's fun, but also like, trying to think of it from what the players are going to experience and just wanting to know, like, what is that going to be like? Like people arguing in a room and how do they figure out what's happening? And then as an author, I need to make sure to plant enough seeds, right? So they're specifically arguing about getting locked in here. They're specifically arguing about getting left behind and not being able to get out of this dungeon so that while they're yelling at each other about this, hopefully the players will put two and two together and be like, well, if these ghosts just want to get out of the dungeon, that's fine. Well, We'll show them the way out. It's right over there. And so then did you have a least favorite part about writing this? Yeah, sort of. Sure. Uh, there's one thing that is a little frustrating. So I, I said before how it's a sandbox, right? And sandboxes are very, just go and explore it and see what you come across. And so I was able to interweave a lot of little stories. Um, but the second book in Abomination Vaults differs from the first and that the first one you start in this town and then you find this old like lighthouse and then underneath the lighthouse, there's all these dungeon levels and you're exploring them. But the thing is there, a lot of the stories there are tied back to the town, which is great because you get to know the townspeople better. You get to interact with them. You have a lot of fun, silly, like improv RP moments, like a lot of interesting stories to tell that have to do with the town that you're at. Um, But you can't get, past a certain point in the dungeon like there's a magical barrier and you can't get through it well the thing that's preventing you from getting through it is also preventing the things in the dungeon from getting out which means that the second part of the book my part there's not as much interaction between the denizens of the dungeon and the folks who live in the town so the stories become more about the stuff that you find in the dungeon and what their ecology is like rather than back to the town that you've grown to know and love and you're still going back there to resupply and rest and stuff and you can still interact with folks but one of the most challenging parts for me was to find ways to tie the story back into the town it's been sealed off for hundreds of years how do you make story about what's going on in the dungeon and what's going on in the town and how those are related so that was a little bit of a a little bit of a challenge to sort of bridge that gap. I don't know that I did that super successfully. Uh, I know some reviewers definitely didn't think I did that successfully, but I also think it's, it's not really the purpose of that book. The purpose of that book is to show that there's a lot more going on than just what's on the surface or near the surface. There's a whole, there's a whole world happening beneath your feet and there are political struggles that may have lasted decades there are people with their own schemes and power struggles and it's all happening beneath your feet and you didn't even know about it. And so I think I was successful in that, but it was a very difficult thing to write when I know that they've got all these cool, engaging stories to, uh, from, from folks that are just like them. They're humans and elves and dwarves uh, to go and say, okay, now there are these strange and unusual creatures that live under the ground and how do you create relatable stories with them? So it was a bit of a challenge. Uh, 
I think I succeeded in a lot of ways, but it was it was more difficult, I think, to, to tie into the larger story at hand. Yeah, I could definitely see that being difficult, but it sounds like from what you've said that it makes sense. <laughs> you figured it out. It also, it sounds like a challenge of being a middle book. I mean, I just want to mm-hmm. name that is really like I think about trilogies <laughs> in general and the middle story is the hardest to write uh, because you're you're not in that fun, like beginning to know, like exploring space and you're not at the like huge right. climax at the end, but you still exactly. have to have all of those elements to keep people engaged. Well, and, I, and I think that's why, that's why like it's, it's so sandboxy too. I think that's why that choice was made to give free reign in these areas. But again, like I can't tie too strongly to stories that are in the third book because of some circumstances going on. And I can't, tie too strongly to what's going in the town because of this magic barrier. So, so I needed to make sort of my own stories and my own moments. And that's where things like the story of the two brothers, the story of the band, um, you know, the stories of some other folks that live in this dungeon or are visiting it for a very specific purpose and what's going on and try and create moments for them to discover there. And yeah, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit insular in terms of the, the book and the things that are happening within it. But it's also sort of the nature of what's going on there. But I, I, I do see what you're saying about the middle story and how, yeah, you can't, I can't resolve the big bad plot. I can't even start to resolve it because there's a whole other book to resolve it, right? You know, um, so all I can do is give hints as to give you more information about what the big bad is like, about what the big bad's followers are like and, and what they're up to after being left alone for hundreds of years. And so then just from how long you've been writing, do you have any advice to designers beyond just what you had shared about how to get into writing for RPGs? Oh, 100%. Write things that you think are fun. Don't write to what you think other people will think is fun. You can do that, but it'll come off as like, mm, I don't know, not quite inspired. It'll be like, yeah. I guess that's a useful feat, or I guess that's a good item, or I guess that's filling a niche. But if you really go, you know what would be fun, you know what would be really interesting, and just write that, write the write the adventure that you want to play, or the adventure you want to to run as a GM. Like oh, I, I actually really want to run this book that I wrote. Like I'm I'm super excited for it. Uh, and that's because when I was writing it, I was writing encounters and things that I'd want to come across. And there are parts in it that I would want to play as a player. I'm like, I don't want to run this. I want to play it as a player. There are things that you get to do as a player that would be so much fun in here. And those are the things that you should be writing because those will really put yourself on the page. They'll really put yourself in that dungeon, in that adventure, um, things that you think is cool. And even if it's it's rules, right? If, you know, if you're writing like fun new things for your fighter to do or, uh, you know, 15 magic tricks for a bard, write the sorts of magic tricks and fun things that you would want to play as a player. And if you do that, you'll you'll be successful. You'll have good, well, I mean, also like, meet the formatting requirements and make sure it's balanced and all that technical stuff. But in terms of the creative inspiration part, just do the stuff that you think would be fun. Oh, I always wish there was a, there was a class that did this. or there was a build that allowed me to, I don't know, like the captain America build, like use a shield and throw it and have it bounce around the room and I can catch it. That would be cool. That's a rip off of captain America. Sure. Fine. But I can safely use it because no one would publish it. Um, but you know, if there's a, a build that you thought was cool, I'm, I'm going to give out one that I don't think exists. So if you're listening to this, 
feel free to write it. And I'm, I'm also stealing it because we always steal from other stuff. In college, there was a player who randomly in the middle of the adventure decided, you know what would be cool? I'm going to use this grappling hook and rope as my weapon. I'm going to swing the grappling hook around and then like throw it at people and maybe try to catch them with it and like trip them or like drag them over to me. And I'm going to just do really cool tricks with this grappling hook and rope. I remember running that game and I, I had to basically come up with rules on the fly and say, oh, okay, sure. I guess you can do this. And over time we figured out ways to do it. Well, there doesn't exist a way to do that in the game right now. So if you're writing, that would be cool. If it doesn't exist by the time I get a chance to write it, I probably will. Uh, but it, like, it just really fun things that you, are kind of you think would be cool to play. Like that's, I don't know, that's where you get your best in, inspiration from. Vanessa, could you share with folks if you have anything you're working on that you'd like to plug or anything that's coming out? Oh my goodness. Um, Yes, things I'm working on, but uh, the most recent thing that came out is this Abomination Vaults. If you are interested in playing it, uh, you can straight from the start. But if you are not a tabletop RPG uh, aficionado uh, and want to take it slow, Pathfinder has a beginner box. The beginner box will take you through some adventures in the town of Otari, which just happens to be where the Abomination Vault starts. So you can start getting familiar with the town and see if Pathfinder is the game for you in the beginner box. And it's a really good product. I wrote zero of it. I just really think it's awesome that it's out there. Uh, for those of you who are out there and are like, you know what, I want some really cool stuff. I did write one thing that I'm super proud of uh, in first edition, because this is all second edition Pathfinder. In first edition, there was a class called the Kineticist. And if you've ever watched Avatar The Last Airbender, and those kids are throwing around them. fire and wind and water and what's the other earth? Yeah, good old tough. So if you like think that's the coolest thing ever, but you want to play second edition uh, and the Kineticist doesn't exist in second edition or does it uh, i did write a full conversion by legendary games uh published it for me um for the kineticist for second edition so if you if you look for legendary kineticist you will find that at drive through rpg and other places where rpg products are sold uh, and it is a very inexpensive ten dollar product uh with so much so many feats hundreds of feats uh a bunch of things that you can do to make your own kineticist that uses ice or fire or air or earth or any combination of them that's so funny for all you listeners i actually have layout credits for one of the legendary games rpgs so i think that's great that you mentioned them <laughs> i do yeah, Jason Nelson over there, I, I remember pitching to him at one point and saying, hey, uh, so second edition is out. There's no kineticists in sight. And I love the kineticist because I love all that elemental stuff. It's so much fun. Why don't we just write it? And he said, sure. And it took me a year to get it all together and finally published. But there it is. Uh, and it's something I'm really proud of. It's uh, It turned out exactly the way I wanted it to. And folks have generally really enjoyed it as well. And uh, so yeah, if you like all that elemental wielding power and uh, throwing around gouts of fire and blasts of air, then definitely check out Legendary Kineticist for second edition. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 21, Abomination Vaults. Thanks again, Vanessa, for joining us. For anyone who's looking to find you, where can you be reached? 
um, the best place and the most public place that you can probably reach me is on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is Ninja Cat Vanessa. Uh, N-I-N-J-A-C-A-T Vanessa, uh, V-A-N-E-S-S-A. Um, and uh, you can find me there. I am usually talking about dumb Pathfinder stuff. So <laughs> That's great. Sure well, not dumb. This is your host, Denise. You can find me on Twitter at Year23. And then your other host, Danielle. And you can find me on Facebook at DMR Creative Group, Twitter at Creative DMR, and then Instagram as Token Gamer. And that's G-A-Y-M-E-R. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks, Vanessa. Thank you. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.